Please be seated. <clears throat> Good morning again. Um, my wife told me that I was looking particularly somber this morning. Uh, that's just so that for you that are visiting, I want you to know that Presbyterians are very serious people. So, <laughs> as long as you've got that impression. Um, if you are visiting, then uh, let me tell you that we're uh, right towards the end of a series that we've been doing for several months now in the book of Ephesians. I think last week I said that this week would be our last week. We actually do have one more week. Uh, and we're right here near the end of Ephesians in chapter 6. And uh, as, you've, as we've said every week for weeks now, uh, we've been looking at this book each week to, say, to see what Paul, the author of this book, writing to this group of people, the Ephesians, been looking at this book to see what does this book tell us about what it means to, to become a community of grace? What does it tell us about what it means to become more a community of grace, to live out this grace into which we've been called? Uh, and so uh, we're going to be turning again to that theme this morning. Our passage this morning is uh, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 17. If you happen to be using a pew Bible, this is on page 979 of your Bible. Let me say again, if if you don't have a Bible, if you don't have one that's in a translation that's understandable and helpful for you, please feel free to take one of ours. Uh, but again, we're on page 979, Ephesians 10, 6, uh, chapter 6, verses 10 through 17. Now let's, let's pray before we read these verses together. Father, we come to you this morning. We ask that you would open our eyes to hear your word to us, which is what these verses are. We pray that you would break through the boredom of our hearts and sometimes the hardness of our hearts and the distraction, all the things that um, subtly tell us that, that what we read here is actually irrelevant for our lives. This is what's most relevant. You speak to us about what is true, so we pray by your spirit you'd open our eyes that we might see that and be encouraged by you, that you would teach us and guide us, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let's look at these verses. Again, chapter 6, verses 10 through 17. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, as I mentioned, we've been looking at these passages saying, what does this teach us about what it means to become a community of grace? We've just gotten through this uh, section in the, for the past chapter or so where Paul's been talking about some of the very mundane relationships of life. And now he, he turns to this. If you're like me, you've maybe read this passage before and thought, how in the world does this fit in with the rest of the book? I was tracking with Paul up until now, and now things just get sort of strange. He's talking about this, this idea of spiritual warfare. What, what, what does that mean? Well, I think we're going to see this morning, this text actually tells us a couple important things about what it means for us 
to live an authentically spiritual life. He tells us about two things. He tells us about a disturbing reality, and he tells us about a profound hope. So we're going to look at those two things in this passage, a disturbing reality and a profound hope. Here's the disturbing reality that we find as we read these verses. That we, if you're somebody who follows Jesus, we are a people who are at war. That we're in the middle of a spiritual war that many of us maybe don't even understand. Uh, Paul is telling us that we actually are people who have an enemy. And he has a name. He refers to him, the devil, and those who follow him. That we have a spiritual enemy. Now, we, many of us don't talk about that very much in a very overt way or think about it very much because we just sort of get confused by it. Um, let me read you a quote by C.S. Lewis for those of you familiar with Screwtape Letters. This comes from the introduction of Screwtape Letters. He says, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an, an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors. They hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. Okay, what's he saying? This reality of spiritual evil in the world. Uh, in Screwtape Letters, he says, you know, uh, the devil is, is pleased with either error. To totally disbelieve that he exists or to become so consumed with an interest in him that that's all that you see. He says both those errors can serve his ways. And this is sort of a challenge for many of us to our view of the universe, and maybe for some of us who are Christians, a challenge to our view of our own faith, uh, because w we don't think about this very often, that Scripture says that we have an actual enemy. Uh, think about the course of your week, though. Does, it, um, does something about this maybe resonate with you? Or have there been times even this week where you've thought, what's going on in my life? <laughs> Why are things falling apart in this particular way? Why um, do I feel like I have no more strength? Why do I feel like everything is out to get me? Why do I feel like my life is crumbling down? Well, Paul holds up for us. Some of that may well be the fact that we are people who genuinely are under attack, that we have a spiritual enemy who would like nothing better than to see us destroyed. That's what Paul's telling us. Uh, for most of my life now, I've, I've always wanted to visit Australia. I've, I've had this picture of what a great place Australia would be. I want to go to Australia. Every time, ever since I saw, back in high school, the, the movie The Man from Snowy River, if you've seen this, um, beautiful mountains, everybody rides horses, they live close to the land, they shear sheep, they round up cattle in their free time, you know, Australia has always just sounded great to me. Now, I've never been there, and, and the truth is I may never go there because I started reading about Australia. <laughs> and frankly, I'm frightened. Um, for those of you that have seen the most recent King Kong movie or know that story, you remember Skull Island and King Kong where all these incredible dinosaurs and frightening things live? That is Australia. Uh, <laughs> I started reading about Australia, and let me tell you about a few things that live in Australia. Uh, they have dangerous spiders in Australia. There's this one called the funnel web spider that can kill you. Uh, there's another one, a redback spider. I saw a documentary about this, and it's one of those where you see this scene from inside the garage, and there's this spider looming and children playing out in the backyard, and you think, what's going to happen? The redback spider, it says, is Australia's most well-known deadly spider. They're found all over Australia. They're common in urban areas. 
The black widow spider is a close relative of the redback. These spiders are usually found under logs, rocks, bricks, sheds, and, out and outdoor toilets. <laughs> redback spiders. There are 2,000 species of deadly poisonous plants in Australia. Uh, there's a creature in the ocean called the box jellyfish, and it, if it stings you, it can stop your heart within three minutes. There's another jellyfish called, the, you're fascinated, aren't you? The, <laughs> I'm going to mispronounce this, the irukanji. It's another jellyfish. The body of this jellyfish is a centimeter and a half wide, and it can kill you too. It's the smallest animal on earth capable of killing humans. They have saltwater crocodiles that are not poisonous, but yet can still kill you. <laughs> Blue ring octopus, barrier reef cone shell, scorpion fish, and snakes of the ten most dangerous snakes in the world, eight of them live in Australia. Okay, I wanted to go to the snowy river region of Australia, and I found instead that this land is dangerous, that you can get hurt in Australia. There are snakes, there are crocodiles, there are jellyfish. I'm not sure I want to go there anymore. Because frankly, I'm not sure I have what it takes to survive in Australia. Now, here's the thing about this text. In this text, we, we're told that um, in this world, this world, even for those following Jesus, it is a spiritually dangerous place. And it makes Australia look like nothing. Paul says here that we have a real enemy. He says that we're caught up in a cosmic conflict with the devil who is scheming against us. Struggle against the devil, and if you look in verse 12, um, a whole list of, of entities that are a part of his world, the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And this might be a surprise for many of us, one that we don't want to think about, a disturbing surprise. Because maybe you're thinking, when I became a Christian, um, it was because I had seen that there was something drastically wrong with my life. I came to see that the heart of my struggles, there was a spiritual alienation from God caused by my sin. And I heard the call and the promise of the gospel to repent, to turn away from our sin, turn away from our selfishness, our own self-centered plans for our lives. And we saw the promise that in Christ we could have forgiveness for our sins and a new, unbreakable relationship with our God, a relationship of love and peace and acceptance. And we like that, and it is true. But then maybe we're thinking, nobody ever said anything about a life being at war now with Satan. Okay, so we're going to see a couple things. What, what is this battle? Okay, what is this battle that Paul's describing? Um, the first point about it is that in this battle, there is, there's no neutrality. There's no neutral side. Jesus himself pointed at this. Matthew 12, verse 30, he said, If you're not with me, you're against me. If you're not with me, you're against me. There's no middle ground. Why is that? Well, it's because there, there really can't be any other way. It can't be because of who Jesus claimed that he was. If Jesus is really the Lord of the universe, if he is really God incarnate, if he is really the only Savior for mankind, the only one who gives hope to lost, fallen, broken people, if he is the true Lord, then his claim on us is all-encompassing. It reaches into every area of our life, and there can't be any rivals if it's true that Jesus is Lord, then nothing else can be. No rival loves, no rival allegiances. Jesus says, you're either with me or you are against me. In other words, there's no such thing as spiritual Switzerland. Okay? There's, there's no neutrality. 
There's no standing back from the conflict of having a policy of non-engagement. There's no spiritually neutral stance when it comes to Jesus. But the thing we sometimes don't realize is that becoming a Christian doesn't usher you into this battle for the first time. It's the same battle that you've been a part of since birth, but now you've switched sides. Okay? We were once in, now, in, once in one army, and now if you're a Christian, you're in a different army, the other army. We were now part of one kingdom. We now we belong to another. We were children of one family. Now we've been adopted into a new family, God's family. If you go back to the first couple chapters of Ephesians, Paul says it this way. We were once children of wrath. We were once children of alienation. We were not once separated from God. We were once his enemies. But when Christ came and drew us to himself, we became children of grace, children of our Father. We've been brought into a whole new family. Now here's the thing. If we've been brought into that family, then if we're going to follow a new Lord, and that Lord is Jesus, then that also means that Jesus' enemies become our enemies. Anything that would work against him, um, as Paul says to us, there, there really is a devil and he really does shake his fist at God and hate him. And that means that if we're going to follow Jesus, then he's going to hate us as well. It means that this new community of grace that Paul has been talking about is going to be a target of attack as well. Think about all the glory and the beauty of God lavishing his love on us through redemption, through the salvation that he's brought us in Jesus. First couple chapters of Ephesians, think about the glorious promise that we have that God, even before the creation of the world, before he first laid the first brick, he chose us to be his. He planned for us from the beginning to rescue us from sin. A Christian can rightly say, before God even made the universe, he had me in mind and he decreed everything it would take to bring me into his family that I might spend all of eternity in a right relationship with him in joy and fullness and peace. Think about what Paul said about God summing up all things in the universe in Christ, that one day the whole universe would be set right and see Christ seated at the throne, at the center, that everything would be whole, beautiful, radiant, reconciled. Paul goes on to talk about us being a part of this great work of God in time and space of reconciling everything to himself, that the church would be a place where this reconciliation works out in our relationships with each other, that there would no longer be any racial barriers, socioeconomic barriers, cultural barriers, people from every ethnicity, tribe, color, economic class, all worshiping Jesus. We've seen what Paul has talked about, that he would take us and make us a people who radiate that beauty to the world. Right relationships, words used in the right way, lives put back together. Marriages that are healed, husbands loving their wives, children learning to obey and love their parents, parents being tender with their kids, our relationships at work healed. All of these things, this picture of what redemption is doing for the people of God. Now let me ask you this, don't you think that God's new community of people, the church, this group, living out this kind of beautiful picture of salvation, doesn't remind you of anything. It ought, to mind, it ought to remind you of a picture of heaven. 
And that's, in fact, what we are getting a taste of when we see the beauty of this play out in our actual lives. We're getting a taste of heaven itself, God making that a reality in glimpses right now. But that also means that picture of beauty shining in this world is going to draw the attention of the one who is our real spiritual enemy. If you think back, um, World War II, the experience for people in England as uh, there were nightly air raids. What did you have to do? You had to, you had to put blackout paper in your windows. You had to keep all your lights off. Because if, as the bombers were coming overhead, if they saw any lights, they would, they would immediately have a target. So you kept all your lights off. Well, a community of people and lives that are individually living out this picture that Paul's painted throughout Ephesians are like turning on the floodlights in your backyard while the bombers are coming overhead. It creates a target because it shines and it's beautiful and it's not meant to be hidden. And Paul tells us we have an enemy that sees that and detests that and wants to destroy that. Okay. We have a real fight. Where does it take place? Uh, verse 12 says this. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, Paul's used this phrase, heavenly places, at least four other times in Ephesians. Uh, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, he says that we have been blessed through Christ in the heavenly places. Ephesians 1.20 says the heavenly places are where Jesus is now enthroned in glory, where he's now seated in glory. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6 says that we are seated with Jesus in the heavenly places, that his people are already enthroned with him. And Ephesians 3.10 talks about the church uh, displaying the manifold wisdom of God to those in the heavenly places. Okay, What's Paul saying? That, there is, that this is a, a spiritual reality. That in the heavenly places, Christ is already seated in glory. And that that is where the spiritual fight takes place. But we see it break out all around us. Okay, now when you, when you think about the phrase spiritual warfare, if that's not something that's new to your vocabulary, what do you think of? My brother and my sister-in-law just got back from a missions trip where they spent a week in Haiti. And they uh, spent this week in the small town and uh, working with some missionaries there who run a Christian school and an orphanage. And he told me stories about how about three doors down from this compound where they, um, where they had their school and the orphanage, uh, there was a voodoo witch doctor. Okay, voodoo is rampant in Haiti. Um, and it's this pervasive, dark spiritual influence there. Um, my brother said you could hear, you know, all kinds of, screams and strange things at night, that there are child sacrifices that still happen there. Okay, Spiritual warfare. When we, th when we hear that term, we tend to think of stories like that. And that's why when we come to Ephesians, and we've been reading all through uh, the book of Ephesians, we get to this chapter and it seems just so strange to us. Right, because here we've been talking about some of the most mundane things. He just got done talking about marriage and children and work, and now suddenly he's talking about voodoo in Haiti. Okay, now the voodoo in Haiti is certainly an example of spiritual warfare. But the context of the book of Ephesians tells us something, I think, serious and that we often misunderstand and overlook, which is that it fits perfectly in the context of this book. Where is Satan most 
active, where does he have the most fertile ground in our lives? For most of us, it's not in Haiti. But it is right in the middle of our marriages. It is right in the middle of our home life, trying to relate with our parents and with our kids. It is right in the middle of our work life. Paul's just got, gotten done saying that the, um, the ground in which we live out our faith is in the most mundane aspects of life. Now he begins to talk about spiritual warfare because this is where the real spiritual fight is for us as well. In the middle of all the mundane parts of our lives, all the mundane relationships. You know, again, we tend to think of the big things, uh, you know, D-Day of the battle, the big glorious battles. This is a different kind of warfare. It's the kind that happens in city streets and in the marketplace, kind of warfare we're getting used to now. In the middle of your everyday life, Paul says, that's where the spiritual warfare is taking place. There are two uh, extremes, I think, that we can fall into, and some people do. One is um, you read a passage like this, and suddenly there's a demon under every rock, right? Everything just becomes terrifying to you. All you can think about or maybe what you're consumed by is this uh, work of the devil that Paul says is all around us. And we spend um, our time focusing only on that, one of the errors that C.S. Lewis pointed out. You know, for many of us, maybe a more common extreme is simply this. We're used to the fact um, in our own theological tradition that the heart of our struggle is really with the sin and junk in our lives that keeps surfacing and keeps popping up. We see this ongoing fight against sin in our lives, and maybe our more likely danger is that we're blind to the fact that not only is that true about us, but we're really under attack from the outside as well. That both those things are true. We are at war within and we're at war without. Now for the own, our own struggle with, for example, our own sin, the stuff that is war, at war with us on the inside, you know, our, our struggle to be in relationship with each other, our struggle to actually trust Jesus, our struggle um, to live out the reality of our faith. What do you do when you find yourself struggling with that? Try harder. Try harder to be a good Christian, to live up to the reality of what Jesus has given us. Just try harder to do what Paul said earlier in the book. Be kind with your words. I'm going to try harder just to be more loving to my wife. I'm going to try harder uh, to simply be better at my job. I'm just going to suck it up and I'm going to get it done. Is there any power in this? If you've been following Jesus for long, you know that there's not. And Paul says, what do you do in the middle of those struggles? You believe the reality of the gospel at work for you. Where is your hope? Not in your performance, but in the performance of Jesus on your behalf. The only place you're going to find the strength and the power to fight that is to know that you have found favor with your Father because of what Jesus has done for you. Paul points us back in our interior struggles to the hope of the gospel. But that's also where he points us back in the reality of this external struggle. Okay, not only is the gospel what frees us and what protects us in the middle of our own struggle with our sin, the gospel is also what frees us and protects us in the middle of our struggle against our enemy. Paul tells us that we have an enemy on the outside as well as on the inside, and that very same gospel which brings forgiveness and life and healing is the same gospel that he now says is the armor that protects us from the attacks of Satan. Okay, there's a, there's a 
um, a hard reality that we are people that spiritually at war. Second thing, there's a profound hope that the gospel enables us to stand. Okay, what are we supposed to be doing in this fight that we've been thrown into? What is our objective? Uh, in verses 11 through 14, Paul tells us four different times that what we are to do is to stand. Verse 11, he says that we might be able to stand. Verse 13, that we'd be able to withstand. Verse 13, that we'd be able to stand firm. And then verse 14, the central exhortation of this passage, therefore, stand. Now, look at what he's not saying. Take the hill. Win the great victory. Be the hero. He's not telling any of us that. He simply tells us to stand. Why? Because the hill has already been taken. The decisive victory has already been won. The hero has already saved the day. Listen again to what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 through 23. Paul says that God's immeasurably great power is at work in us, his people. And he says it's the same power, listen to this, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. What's he saying? That at the resurrection of Christ, when God seated Christ at his right hand in the heavenly places, that his victory was won. The decisive battle's been won. The enemy's back has been broken. Now, as we all know, the enemy still exists and one day will be eradicated. But even now, our enemy has been guaranteed final defeat. And the resurrection, Paul says, is proof of that. And so what are we supposed to do in this battle? Not to win the day, not to win the victory, but to stand, to keep on standing, to stand firm in the middle of the real struggles of our lives, to stand up in the victory that the Lord Jesus has won on our behalf. In other words, to faithfully follow Christ in the contours of the actual life that you're living in right now, to faithfully follow Christ in the middle of the very relationships that Paul's been describing in the previous passage, in our marriages, in our families in our work, in all the situations and relationships of our life, Paul calls us to stand. And then look what he says is the source of the strength for this. Verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. What's he saying? You don't have what it takes. You don't have the spiritual strength. You don't have the resolve. You don't have the natural ability to live this life of faith and follow Jesus. You don't have what it takes. And I certainly don't have what it takes. Now, in theory, you believe this, but let me ask you this. When you find yourself in the middle of the grip of your own sin and frustration, however that might be flaring up, why are you surprised? When you look at this and you think, I can't believe that I'm capable of this. Or after all these years, I still can't seem to shake this. Or I thought I was done with this. Where did this come from again? And we're so surprised. Why? Because we think somewhere that we have, or at this point ought to have, what it takes 
to follow Jesus and just put this behind us. And what does Paul tell us? You don't have what it takes. And he says, if you're going to stand, then you have to stand in the strength and the power of the Lord. The only strength you can hope in is the strength that Jesus gives to you. And what does that strength look like? Paul uses this image of the armor of the Lord. This comes from, especially from a couple different passages in Isaiah. Listen to this from Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 5, speaking about the Messiah. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eye sees or decide disputes by what he hears, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor, decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist faithfulness shall be the belt of his loins. And then Isaiah 59. He saw that there was no man, and he wondered that there was no one to intercede. And then he, God, with his own arm, brought salvation. And his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate. He put on the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing. He wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. Paul looks back to these verses in Isaiah, this imagery of battle, and he sees... Jesus himself wrapped in this armor for his fight. And what does that mean for us? That when Paul says, take up this armor of God, he is saying, take up the armor of Jesus himself. It's not an armor you make for yourself. It was tested and tried, and it is true, because it is the very same armor that our Messiah wears himself. It does protect. It does the trick. Now let's look at this, the description of this armor, and we'll just look at it briefly. Verse 14, the first of the six things he lists, he says, the belt of truth. It's important that, uh, and an interesting, crucial place to start. He says, what does Paul say? There is such thing as truth, and it's of fundamental importance to the gospel. Because if the story of the Bible isn't true, if Jesus wasn't who he said he was, the very Son of God, the incarnation of God's presence, then this armor, is, it's only smoke and mirrors. It's not going to do anything for us if it's not true. It's a nice idea. It's a creative metaphor, a stirring image, but an image isn't going to help you very much in the middle of a real battle. You see, the actual historical reality of Christianity is absolutely essential. And just one application of this. Christianity can stand up to your questions. Following Jesus doesn't involve turning off your mind. In fact, turning off your mind will, over time, weaken and corrode your faith from the inside out. And that might take uh, shape in a lot of different ways in your life. At one university I used to work with, for, um, work with students in, in a Christian organization, there was this notorious freshman New Testament class. And um, young, naive Christians, freshman Christians would go to this class and, and they would, they'd be destroyed in one of two ways. Uh, they would hear all these intellectual challenges to the Christian faith. And it would do, for most, it would do, or many, it would do one of two things. It would either tear down their faith, and they'd walk away saying, there's no reality in this, and I can't follow Jesus. Or they would say to themselves, I know that can't be right, but I can't figure out why, and so I'm just going to turn off my brain, try to stick to the things I've always believed that are true, and pretend there are no challenges to my faith. 
And both those things will destroy your faith. And Paul tells us that we have the belt of truth wrapped around us. Whatever questions come up for you, pursue them. Look for answers. Think. Don't be afraid of them. Put on the belt of truth. Second thing he lists, verse 14, the breastplate of righteousness. What is it that's protecting your vital organs? What is it that is standing between you and spiritual harm? What is guarding your life? And Paul says righteousness. This righteousness that, of the armor that Jesus himself wore. Of his righteousness for us. Of his, the rightness of his relationship with God. Of his obedience and faith. His righteousness guarding and protecting us and teaching us to act in righteousness. What is it that's protecting you? And Paul says, only Jesus. He goes on in verse 15, the shoes of gospel readiness. Again, a quote from Isaiah 52, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. What's he saying? The gospel gives us firm footing, and it gives us a readiness a speed to share that hope with others. He goes on in verse 14, or excuse me, verse 16 to the shield of faith. He says, In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith which, which, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. What is our protection in the middle of sudden attack? Okay, in ancient battle, one of the weapons that was used were these flaming arrows, either shot from a bow or thrown by hand in the heat of battle. What's it like for us in the middle of the very sudden attacks we experience in life when flaming darts are coming our way, when temptation springs up out of nowhere and throws us off our guard, when your thoughts seem out of control, when your desires are threatening to overwhelm you, when everything you say you believe and live for is suddenly challenged and you're tempted to just give in? What are you going to do? Well, Paul says, raise your shield of faith. Remember the one you are putting your faith in. Remember that the gospel has power in the middle of your struggle then and there. When depression is threatening to overwhelm you, remember that you have a hope and a security in Jesus that nothing can crush, nothing can defeat, nothing can erase, not your struggle, not your body chemistry, not even your sin. When you're sexually tempted and so much of you so badly wants to give in, raise the shield of faith. Remember that the temptation promising you life really only brings death. Trust in the words of life from your Savior, not the words of death being offered to you by your tempter. When the situations of your life threaten to crush you, what does he say? Raise the shield of faith. Remember that the one who feeds the birds of the air and clothes the lilies of the field is the one who is going to feed and clothe and care for you. Remember that the one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills has the resources to provide for you. Remember that the one who spoke into the darkness and created light has powerful words which can dispel the darkness in your life as well and bring real light and healing there too. He goes on in verse 17, the helmet of salvation. What's going to protect your head, the helmet of salvation? An unbreakable protection for your mind and for your life. Not only a protection, but a promise. A promise that our salvation has already been won. 
And that one day will carry through to the day when our salvation is completed, when the attacks are over, when the enemy is gone, the day that is coming when we'll be able to lay down our armor. But until then, he says, wear the helmet of salvation. Then he ends with, uh, in verse 17, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. It's interesting, the one thing that he lists that is an offensive as well as a defensive word, uh, defensive weapon. Paul's talked about the Word of God twice in Ephesians. First, he talks about the Word of Truth. He talks about the Word of the Gospel. It is the message of God's salvation, the truth of the Gospel pounded home in your life, the sword of the Spirit, which is what we have when we open the pages of Scripture, the Word of God's promise, the Word of the Gospel for us. Using the sword of the Spirit, another way of looking at that, basking in the promises of God, knowing them, remembering them, praying them, using them as a defense. In conclusion, Paul says, we are in a real spiritual battle. It's really going on. And he says, how are we going to stand in the middle of that? How are we going to survive? How are we going to stay on our feet? Paul says, by putting on the armor of God, by taking it up, by living in it. This armor, which is just another way of saying, the work of Christ on our behalf the victory of Christ on our behalf, the strength of Christ on our behalf. Paul says that, that is our armor. That is all we have to rely on. And he says it is enough. It is what we need. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would wake us up where we need to be woken up, that we would see that this life in Jesus you've called us into is... um, It really is a battle. I pray that you would wake us up, that we would see that the resources you have given us really are trustworthy. Father, we pray that this perspective would would just transform the way we think about you, the way we pray, the way we take up your word, scripture, and read, that we would see that we are people desperately in need of armor, one that you provide. May we find it in you. May you give us strength and encouragement and protection in the middle of the very real struggles of our very mundane lives. May we be faithful and stand in the middle of that, that you would be honored, that you would be glorified. And we give praise to you that this battle is already decisively won because of Jesus who sits at the right hand of the Father and protects us with his very own armor. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing our closing hymn.